0: You don't need to be a chest pain hero. We always practice our last worst case. The path to many bad outcomes is paved with the cobblestones of wheezing.
1: There is no such thing as a no-risk life. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we're back with Risk Management Monthly. Now, you think the next person who's going to speak is Rick Bucata. Ah, Wrong. Rick is actually down in L.A. where the Risk Management Monthly entire recording staff is here in San Francisco. We're all doing Mel Herbert's Essentials. So we've got the team together, and I'm going to let everybody introduce themselves because you're in for a real treat today. Jan, start out.
2: Good morning. This is Jan Schoenberger. Um, I'm from Los Angeles. I'm the residency director at the LA County USC residency program, and I am also an associate professor at the Keck School of Medicine, and I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Hi, this is Rob Orman from Snowmass Village, Colorado. I work at Valley View Medical Center. I don't, I don't really have any medals or stars on my uniform. I, that's pretty much it. No adjunct professorship. Just a community ED doc. I host the ER ERCast podcast, as well as periodic segments on MRAP, emergency medicine
3: reviews and perspectives. Mike. Mike Weinstock, and we're glad to be with everybody here today. We have just really, really... Nice panel here that we're going to discuss this case. So I'm in Columbus, Ohio. I work with immediate health associates, and I'm also a clinical associate professor at the Ohio State University. Greg? Yeah, it's
1: very hard for a guy from the University of Michigan to sit next to somebody from <laughs> the Ohio State University. But what we're going to do today is, I'm sure you're all aware that that Mike has uh, produced some brilliant volumes, the Bounce Back series. He takes a very serious interest in medical legal cases and the analysis of those cases going right down to the depositions, the trial testimony, the closing arguments, and uh, he's really moved the ball down the field. I hate to use that term again with an Ohio State guy, but he he has changed the perspective on how we look at these cases. done a great job. I'm going to turn it over to Mike,
3: who's going to present some cases for the panel. Before we do that, what I wanted to do is just get a discussion. We're going to frame things in the context of an article, and I think Greg will have a lot to say about this also. This is an article by Terrence Brown, an epidemiologic study of closed emergency department malpractice claims in a national database of physician malpractice insurers. So this is from 2010 in academic emergency medicine. And what they did is they looked at cases from the PIAA, data bank. So it's the Physician Insurers Association of America. It's a trade association of participating malpractice insurers. They insure over 60% of practicing physicians in the United States. So they looked at the data bank from 1985 up until 2007, where an event in the ED was alleged to have caused injury in a patient 18 years or older. They found 11,529 claims arising from an event originating in the ED with over $650 million in total liability. So over this 23-year period of time. And then what they did is they went back and saw which one of those were for the physicians. So 19% of these ED claims were actually for the physicians. The biggest source of those claims was an error in diagnosis. They determined that that was 37%. When they went through all the claims, they found that over two-thirds of the claims closed without any payment to the claimant. About 29% actually went through settlement. Only 7% went to verdict. And of those, 85% settled for the defendant. So the reason that I wanted to frame it in this perspective is that the biggest number of claims for that were for acute MI. And Greg, is that what you have found in your experience? This is the exact same data we've had for
1: 30 years. About 85% of the time, the good guys win. And by the way, probably 10 or 15% of the time, The doctor was an idiot and probably should have paid something. If you look at P.I.A.A. data, they represent about half the emergency medicine claims in the United States. Why is that? Well, if you took something like Team Health, which has close to 600 hospitals, uh, they have their own insurance company. My group had its own insurance company for many years, and I was president of two of those insurance companies. So. The number we can best come up with looking at their data is they have about half the emergency departments in the United States. They wouldn't have USC, why? Because it's independently insured. They don't go through the PIAA, they just don't do it. So you always have to look at these numbers somewhat askance, understand it's not necessarily a representative sample, but in general we can agree that The docs do pretty well. The cost of malpractice in the United States is not paying the premiums. It's in thinking that invades residents in every specialty that they've got to do more and more to prove less and less. And what they don't realize is sometimes doing the test is the malpractice itself. Sometimes it's dangerous. Sometimes it indicates a thought pattern like you should have gone further in a decision. It's like getting one set of enzymes, markers. Uh, is there a reason to do that? But, you know, the, the, looking at the PIAA data is, I think, somewhat reassuring. The other thing is PIA does divide out their data geographically. If you are a doctor in South Dakota, your chances of getting sued, you're more likely to get hit by a meteor. Uh, Really, you have to leave the body in the hallway with your your fingerprints on the knife to get sued in South Dakota. In Dade County, Florida, all you have to do is breathe
3: regularly and you'll get sued. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because what I did is I called Terrence Brown and I asked him because I was curious whether over this 23-year period of time there was a decrease in the number of cases for MI and for chest pain that they were seeing because of our you know better medical practice and our better enzymes markers and residency grads yeah residency grads I mean there's a lot of different things and he went back and looked at this data which actually is not in the study and he thought that there was really not a change but he had a couple interesting points that he brought out one is that he found that of the patients that were missed Some of those were actually categorized as an acute MI when they actually died of some other chest pain type of thing. They might have been capturing other things besides acute MI. And then in addition to that, he thought that there were patients that presented atypically that weren't really recognized. My thought is, now with some of the great work that Amal Matu and Rob with your podcast and different folks have done, bringing things to a point that middle-aged women are more likely to be missed, we're a little more vigilant, at least I am, with evaluating them, that we hadn't really done that in the past. So that was another point that he brought out. But when we were talking, it was really striking how we both felt that our practice had changed over the last several years. And a lot of folks in my shop have also said, you know, I would never have sent this chest pain patient home two years ago, and now I'm doing it. So, Rob, what, what is your thought? Do you feel like your practice has changed with evaluation of chest pain in the last several years? You
0: know, it has. I think it's changed... Several times since I was in residency, there's kind of a pendulum as it's gone. I think when I started out, if a patient had a chest and they had pain, I was going to admit them. And because really my thinking was infused with this idea that the missed MI was the highest liability in our job. And someone said to me early on, you don't need to be a chest pain hero. You don't need to be a hero about this. Just if you're concerned, just admit them. And that was my thinking for a while. And as I've gone through the process over the years and talking to a lot of experts and you know, trying to refine and a more evidence-based thinking, I think, you know, if I am looking for a zero miss rate, I'm probably doing more harm than good. So I think now there's more shared decision making where I'll do some sort of a risk stratification. And maybe that's a Timmy score, EKG, serial enzymes. And I'll discuss with the patient what I think their risk is. So I think that I actually send more patients home now than I used to because there didn't used to be an option for the patient. I thought, you know, if I have a, even an inkling of concern, admit. But now I think I'm doing more outpatient workups, more outpatient provocative testing within a couple of days because we've got that at our shop and we can set it up pretty easily than admitting Everybody, but I also see this phenomena where the pendulum is swinging—at least in some of the community shops. This phenomena of being more cavalier and discharging patients home, maybe not from the emergency docs, but by other consultants, to say, oh, you know, I don't think that it's cardiac. Really, I do," or "There's something that's not a completely normal EKG." boy, I mean, that goes beyond the very low risk to some kind of moderate risk. So I think that there, this pendulum swings back and forth. And, I've, and right now, I actually am
3: seeing more patients sent home than I used to. So I'm going to ask Jan in residency training, but then I want to come back with a couple of specific scenarios for everyone as far as these cases. So Jan, do you find the same thing within training? Are you guys teaching residents differently now than even several years ago?
2: Well, I think um, residents these days are, are more aware of the, of the legal risks involved in practicing emergency medicine. So it certainly has been brought to their attention and early on in training that missed MI is one of the leading causes of, of physicians getting sued. And if you're a young physician thinking about entering practice independently, this really scares you. And so I find that as they, as they are earlier in training, we find that they're really conservative because they just, you know, it's such a difficult diagnosis to make, which comes up in this paper, in fact, that they just, you know, it's all comers. Again, if you have a chest, then you have chest pain, you're going to be, you know, rule out ACS. In fact, they get very much tunnel vision in terms of that's the only diagnosis that they're thinking of.
1: It's important to remember <clears throat> when you talk about Jan's shop, when somebody says, well, I've got a stabbing type chest pain, they've been stabbed. I mean, <laughs> this, really, I mean, this, this is L.A. County. It is a different patient population, and and I think that we have to take some of those regional thoughts and put them into our head.
2: I think that's true. Another thing that comes up in a, a county hospital setting like mine, and it com- came to mind when Rob was talking, is that our patients don't have access to the follow-up. So if we're talking about any kind of outpatient risk stratification or kind of close follow-up, for many of our patients, that just doesn't exist. There is no option where that where that can come into play. So then you have to really make your decision about the here and now. Am I going to do something today or are they going to have their follow-up in six months? Because I mean, that those are really your options. Um, and that kind of changes also your decision-making if they don't have access to a PMD that you can call the next day and get them the the risk stratification that you're thinking about.
1: Yeah, it's real easy to send people home when you know there's been two normal sets of markers, two uh, stone-cold, dead, normal EKGs. There's no pain. And they will get their testing, their stress testing, in the next 72 hours. Uh, I've worked
3: in such places, and that works pretty well. Let me take you to task on on what you just said. So we have a patient who is, I'll give a scenario. We'll see just maybe how we'd all manage this. 65-year-old man, history of a cabbage 10 years ago. He's <laughs> is, a kid. Is, is it, He's <laughs> a
1: veritable kid. <laughs> is this hitting right. close
3: to home here? Yeah, so he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hit, had, had a cabbage uh, 10 years ago and comes in with the textbook crushing substernal chest pain, radiates to both arms, diaphoresis and dyspnea, lasts for two hours, and right when he walks through the doors, he has the discomfort resolves. So you have two sets of markers, they come back, and they're negative, and two stone-cold normal EKGs, not even nonspecific changes. Where are you going with that guy, Greg?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you right now. Previous history does make a difference. Okay. Uh, it, we cannot avoid that. Certainly, if you have to present that story to a jury, I'm, okay. I, th- they're going to get in.
3: Jan, what do you think? That guy comes in to see you?
2: I actually agree as well, um, especially in, in my situation where I can't get any follow-up for that patient. That's definitely someone. A concerning story is as important as an EKG in a lot of ways. And that concerning story with the diaphoresis and, and you know, pressure-like chest pain, that's a classic story. Now, the, the, the pain's gone. The markers are negative. But doesn't mean that something didn't happen. So um, that person's coming into my shop.
1: Okay. Rob. Normal EKG is indeterminate. A positive EKG is positive, we understand that. Exactly.
0: Right, and in the emergency department, these things, these troponins and these EKGs rule in. They don't completely rule out. They never rule out, exactly. And and a patient like this, I mean, so this idea of getting serial EKGs and serial enzymes is to really risk stratify patients in the emergency department, and what we're trying to see are the patients who are very, very low risk when that guy walked in the door, he was by default, not low risk. He was not in that category. So to put him into that risk stratification thought exercise is, is incorrect thinking, because he, he's not an appropriate candidate for that rule
3: out path. So let me change the situation a little bit here. So now the same patient, exact same patient, has eight hours of pain, constant pain. It is eight hours of constant pain, has no pleuritic pain, no risk factors for PE. He does not have a radiation to the back. There's no lightheadedness or any thought of dissection. His chest x-rays normal, which doesn't 100% reassure, but certainly better than if it's abnormal. So we're really just thinking here about ACS. Eight hours of constant pain with two negative enzymes two hours apart what could be causing this guy's pain? I mean, how could, let me ask it differently. How could a cardiac ischemic etiology, pathophysiologically be causing this guy's pain, Rob?
0: It's unlikely that it is infarction happening on this guy. And that's, you know, when someone gets admitted to the hospital and they you know, put it in air quotes, rule out for MI, he just did. He just did rule out for MI. He's not done with his workup.
3: So we have two questions we're asking. We're asking about infarction, yeah. we're asking about ischemia. But let me just go through that another way, again, pathophysiologically. How could you have eight hours of constant ischemic pain? You have ischemia that is exactly constant for that amount of time. Is that something that happens?
0: Yeah, that's something that happens. And that's something that that bites us in the butt. I mean, you know, when we when we live and die by the troponin to think yeah, okay. Negative troponin, done, not cardiac.
1: Yeah, that's, that's just wrong. Troponins indicate the death of cells. They do not indicate the ischemic nature of cells. You can have pain and not have actually killed tissue. Uh, it, it's not a simple question. That's why I think you have
3: to put the package together. Jan, what is your thought? Eight hours of constant pain with two negative EKGs and negative markers.
2: Yeah, I still think this goes back to Rob's point, which is when that guy walks in the door, he's not low risk just to begin with. Kind of no matter what the details of the story are, it's still a concerning uh, patient who needs to be evaluated further. I mean, it could be very well that he has dyspepsia. And I would, you know, it'd be interesting to know how many patients that are admitted to a cardiology service go home with a prescription for a PPI or an H2 blocker. A lot of them do. It doesn't change the fact that the disposition is coming in.
3: Okay, so let me let me go. Let me just say,
1: if they go home from the cardiology service with an H2 blocker, I can handle that. I can't handle it if one of the docs in my department has sent so, home somebody for their first time visit with an H2 blocker. I don't think we can handle that at this moment in time. I, th-
3: I think that is just not going to fly in court. Well, it's really a difference, isn't it, between what happens in court and what happens, I mean, I have confidence in the emergency medicine physician community that we have as much smarts as the cardiologist, and I know that some of it is that magic wand, and you have a title behind your name that you're a cardiologist. I don't really know that most physicians would feel comfortable sending someone home with that presentation, especially because of the potential legal ramifications. But what if you talk to the cardiologist, and we all know that patient was high risk when they walked, and we all know they're lower risk when they leave. You talk to the cardiologist, and they say, yeah, he has pain. He has coronary artery disease. That's not surprising to me. He's prescribed Nitro for that. His pain is unchanged. He gets this all the time. Happened to see me in two days. Jan, you comfortable with that? Uh,
2: that does not make me feel comfortable. It doesn't make me feel comfortable. You know, I understand their point. You know, this is, this is one of those things where it's the art of how you present the patient and, and the details of the story. But no, in, instinctively, I don't feel comfortable.
3: And what are you concerned about? What are you concerned about going to happen with this guy? The, the specific. Physiologic thing that's going to happen to this guy.
2: I I mean your point is well taken which is you know If I'm really picturing the myocardium, and I'm picturing this, you know, what am I picturing is going to happen? Um, I'm just picturing that this is a high-risk person There's parts of this that I you just can't necessarily determine in the first, you know few hours that you're seeing somebody It's a dynamic process. It's a dynamic process um, And it's not necessarily going to be determined right away, so
1: I think it depends on the patient. I had dozens of patients who were chronics They'd been worked up by cardiology two and three times. They'd had a, a, um, an angiogram. They did this, this, and this. You're right, then it was a pain management question. They'd come in, John, how are you? You're back again. Yeah, Dr. Henry, I got the same stuff. Okay, we do as EKGs. We, we do a, a marker. You know, you're on a maximal medical program and, you know, you have to talk to the family. You have to lay it down. Look, could he die tomorrow? Yep. He's got bad heart disease. But there's nothing, the only thing he's going to get, if, he, if we put him in the hospital here, is uh, staff. Right. Uh, you are not going to get benefit from hospitalization. And I think we need to start viewing hospitalization completely differently in this country. It's not whether you have disease. It's whether putting you in <clears throat> one of these expensive rooms actually gives you better health. And I know we actually do some people as much harm as good by putting them in the hospital. You must have had somebody who got out of bed confused at night and older and broke their hip in the hospital. It happens.
3: Well, I don't really see how we can separate our own short-term legal concern from a patient's long-term health when we're talking about this type of thing. I think it is always going to play to some degree in there, this concern that we have with our own personal liability. And of course, we here, are here on Risk Management Monthly, so that's what we're discussing. Rob, let me give you that scenario, That I'm going to change the scenario a little bit and see how we do it differently. So there's the same guy, 65-year-old, past history, eight hours of pain. Cardiologist says, send him home. Are you comfortable with that? I'll see him on Wednesday. Two days.
0: Yeah, you know, a lot of it depends on the past history. And as Greg was saying, there are patients that we see who have this exact scenario who it's known that they will just have chronic pain. But for the patient who this is something new, my, con- my conversation with the cardiologists would be, and you know, we don't have to be pushovers with this. We can advocate for the patient in a, in a nice way, as Al Cichetti would say, but firmly that you know, my concern is, is that this patient has an incomplete occlusion. And- that they are at high risk for becoming a complete occlusion. And, I, and granted, they've had eight hours of pain, but the story and their presentation are so concerning to me that I think that they are at high risk for a bad outcome if I send them home. So you can't force somebody to admit a patient. You, you can only keep them in the emergency department. So I would, I would try my hardest to try to get that patient admitted if I thought that was the right thing to do.
3: So your thought is over the next 48 hours before he follows up, that he would have some bad event. I'm thinking always in my mind, what I tell patients when they ask, why do I need to stay if my tests are negative? I always come to arrhythmia. You know, you have some ischemia and that's going to cause an arrhythmia, which out of hospital, about 5% come back. In the hospital, I think, you catch someone right when they go into V-fib, they're on the monitor, you shock them out of it, Pretty good survival with those patients. So I think that they do have a benefit for hospitalization. But patients are always confused about that. Why if my tests are negative, what I have to stay? Yeah,
0: and that's exactly it. Is I mean once once that vessel completely occludes, you're gonna well you don't say it in VTAC, but I when I they ask what's gonna happen in the hospital to say, we're gonna you see that heart monitor behind you, we're gonna keep you on one of those overnight, and we're gonna see what's happening with your heart rhythm. If anything bad happens, we can act on it. If you're home and that happens, we can't act on it, and it could have a bad outcome.
3: Okay, let me change the situation just a little bit here. So now we have a 40-year-old with no past history who has really the exact same scenario. And the reason I'm asking this question is I want to get a commitment from patients who have a difference of constant pain versus intermittent pain. So this is now an eight-hour constant pain in a 40-year-old with no past history. He's he's a guy that's in as good physical shape as you are, Rob. He's he's you know carving some fresh. He's down the fall line at at Aspen. He's he's like the picture of health. Eight hours of constant pain, but no alternative explanation for it. And he has some of the associated symptoms that make us concerned: diaphoresis, he has some dyspnea, some even though it's constant, a little bit worse with exertion. Now two negative markers, two hours apart, but eight hours of pain, or maybe even one negative marker. I hope this doesn't sound cavalier, but I feel like with eight hours of pain, of a very good, rock-solid history, that he has constant pain, it's never completely gone away for eight hours, he has a negative marker, negative EKG. I am pretty good on this guy as far as the infarction part, but what is your thought on admission decision, Rob? A patient like this who is
0: 40 years old is more likely to be sent home but, at, but, as we know, 40-year-olds have MIs. So the conversation is usually different. When you start off with that age, you can hear on the other side of the phone, whoever you're talking to, oh, okay. It's, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not cardiac. Now, cardiac risk factors don't matter. And I'm talking about the Framingham risk factors. They don't matter when somebody's presenting with acute chest pain. They don't matter in the ED. They matter for long-term cardiac risk i will say that the gestalt changes the heuristic of whatever is happening at that moment does change you know i'll say and i know and i've I've read the studies on risk factors and the ed presentation of chest pain and not mattering but if a 40 year old hypertensive smoking diabetic comes in with crushing chest pain versus a a marathoner they can have mis too you know, my thinking does change somewhat, even though I know that at that moment it doesn't matter so much. So that page, so what happens is those patients do uh, do end up going home. I, I have a discussion with them, to say, "Listen, this is not zero risk. Here, you are at lower risk." I'll go through their EKGs and their troponins, they will say, "Here are here is the likelihood that this is ischemic," and I will actually have a conversation with the patient at, in that young cohort. Thirty-five to forty. About you know, here, here's here's a likelihood of you having a bad outcome in the next month, in the next
3: couple days, uh, and here's what we can do for you in the hospital. Rob, I, I need a commitment, man. I I got I got to hold your feet to the fire on it. You got that patient, forty years old, no risk factors, normal EKG markers. Where are you going with them?
0: Yeah, and this is not a decision that I make by myself. This is a decision that I make with the patient. So. I I, I will discuss it with the patient, and I'll say, here are the options. And it's like, you know, and I'm not trying to hedge my bets, but it's an honest conversation, and it's not just for the medical legal risk. It's to say, you know, here's the deal. You come in the hospital, you could have a complication in the hospital. You go home, you could have this problem too. So that patient is someone I'd be more comfortable with sending home if they said, yeah, I don't really want to stay in the hospital.
1: You know, the reason we have the most expensive, almost least effective healthcare system in the world is because the American public cannot come to grips with the concept of what is the acceptable miss rate. Uh, if you we as science people understand that zero and 100% do not exist in our business. They don't. The only people with stable vital signs are dead people. There is no such thing as a no risk life. It never happened. But we, in dealing with the American populace, have to understand they don't see this as valid. It's yes or no to them. No, I think that they do.
0: I, in my conversations with people about this, they are aware. It's just like when you're talking about somebody who comes in with a bad headache and you want to do a spinal tap, you think, you think, know, here's the likelihood that a spinal tap will add to this, and you know, you could still have a brain bleed, and I'm not seeing it on the CAT scan. And people are willing to accept a certain amount of risk and, and it also comes down for admission. Some people don't want to be admitted to the hospital saying, okay, I've got a 5% risk of this thing happening. Okay,
1: you are really from one of those touchy-feely, like Colorado places, you know, <laughs> pinhead liberals and Democrats and stuff. You know what? They came to us for direction. I don't think that's fair to dump this on patients. I tell them what I think ought to be done, okay? But they came to me for a reason. And I think our
3: patients are looking for direction, too. Well, say the patient asks you that question. They say, now I have a negative CT. I've had, say, my sudden onset thunderclap headache started four hours ago, negative CT. And they say, you tell me, what is my risk of a subarachnoid hemorrhage? You tell me my exact risk and that I will make the decision. Say a patient asks you that question.
1: Yes, and what I would tell them is, depending on which study you read, you still have a risk between one in 300 and one in 700 of having a bleed. Now understand, this is a lethal condition. 60% of those people, six out of 10 who have bled once, are gonna bleed again. And by the way, it is a treatable disease. Would you fly on an airline that had a one in 300 bad landing rate? I'm, I'm just asking the question,
3: right? right. But
1: th- you know what? I don't like those odds.
3: I'd have the spinal tap. I, I don't even have a headache. I feel like I want to get a spinal tap right now. After you absolutely. said that, absolutely. I'm, I'm I'm talked into it. I, I, well, more than that, <laughs> sign me up. I I, th- I think that that's
0: some that's kind of a reductionist view. Of, we're kind of getting into the spinal taps right now, so we'll we'll stay on that. That's that's somewhat reductionist is looking at what this issue of the spinal tap after the CAT scan. So going back this is the perry study that has gotten a lot of this thinking so you have a patient who presents within 6 hours of the worst headache of their life and you get a, a you have a very high resolution new generation ct scan and it shows nothing is there a chance of bleed yes there is the chance depending on how you look at the data, somewhere in one in the hundreds, somewhere. Now, the likelihood of your spinal tap being a false positive is higher than the chance of them actually having a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And not the, with my hands, And the, Well, the, and, and those are very supple hands. Yes. but the, And then the risk of looking for a zero miss rate in that population with the sequelae of the workup is high. You're talking about angiograms and coiling, and that's not a benign procedure. So I think that having a conversation with your patient and giving them true, informed consent, you can guide them. And I tell patients in that scenario, I, here's how I do this workup. I get the CAT scan, and then we're going to talk about a spinal tap, and here's a deal with spinal tap and what i'm looking for and you know what they're going to ask you doctor
1: what would you do if you had this situation i was in that situation yeah and then i have to be
0: honest about it yes i and and i am and and before i was in this situation i say listen i would get the spinal tap because i wouldn't want to die i went to the ed worst headache of my life
1: Re- Sudden onset. I refuse the spinal
0: tap. <laughs> 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 All
3: right, let me do this. Let me do a brief uh, uh, thought on, on risk factors. There was just a, a, several years ago was studied by our good buddy Judd Hollander, and I think the lead author was Hahn and they talked about risk factors. And this is actually quoted in the 2010 American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology guidelines on ED management of low-risk chest pain. And they talk about the fact that if you are less than 40 with over four risk factors, that you have actually a 20-fold increase of your chest pain being from acute coronary syndrome. When I look at the paper, they said seven times with the relative risk increase wasn't 20, so I'm not exactly sure of that discrepancy. But at any rate, certainly I think we all agree that lack of risk factors with a concerning story doesn't rule it out, but probably having a preponderance of risk factors, or maybe lupus, that type of thing, probably would make us more concerned about that patient. So, so Jan, the 40-year-old, no risk factors, eight hours of constant pain, one or two negative markers, where do you go with that patient?
2: Yeah, I, I think that patient's probably going home. Um, I agree with the instincts that we all have. I was just going to ask a couple other questions maybe of the patient, which is uh, any cocaine or meth use in that age group with chest pain. That's a that's a big city Your question. Your patients yeah. would
1: use cocaine or meth? I'm shocked. I'm actually shocked. You
2: know, they like, they like to have a good time, Greg, just yeah. like you.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and also another question uh, would be about just any exertional chest pain. Well, then, Jen, let's... let's stay with you on this let me ask you about the difference
3: between constant and intermittent pain because to me constant pain with negative markers it's reassuring and maybe it should be or shouldn't be but it is reassuring in that patient we talked about the 40 year old certainly well now the patient the same patient has intermittent pain they've had four episodes that have lasted for 15 minutes at a time Uh, the exertional part is probably the most important question we asked any patient with chest pain, and i found that the case that I've reviewed, for some of the legal things, that question isn't always asked. I'm sure Greg would probably agree with that, too. Oh, it's a- amazing a- absolutely. That, that, absolutely. that it's not. I mean, you'd yeah. think that would be the very first question. It's like, if you have a headache, I mean, you didn't ask them if they had a fever, really? I mean, you gotta at least ask that, that question, or the acuity of the onset. But as far as this same patient now, Jan, 40-year-old with intermittent pain, exertional, diaphoresis, and dyspnea, does that change your management just been that one question, the constant versus intermittent.
2: Oh, yeah. It changes it a lot. And um, I, and, and that's why the exertional word has just got to be on these charts. It's got to be not just on the charts, but it's got to be in your out of your mouth when you're talking to the patient and characterizing what you really mean by that. Um, but, yeah, intermittent pain is way more worrisome to me than constant for eight hours as it was presented pain.
3: That's not the patient to increase your throughput on. I think that's one to sit down and make sure you're not walking out the door and they say, which I'm sure you've heard, Greg, but what about this elephant sitting on my chest? Right.
1: I've, I've told that story many times. <laughs> I've only had one guy who actually had had an elephant sitting on his chest. I, I had a, a 52-year-old professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Michigan who was Indian. And, and uh, as a little boy in India, he actually, they pair up a little boy with a baby elephant. They're called a mahout. And, and they help train the elephant. And one day he did have a baby elephant roll on him, and I had to ask the question: Does this feel like the elephant sitting on your chest? He says, "Oh no, elephant much worse." And I, let's get reductionist for real here. What we're trying to decide is this patient safe to go out, or do they need a procedure? And the funny thing is, what we use to screen them. For moving on to the procedure is probably a waste of time uh, and dangerous. And and, and no benefit in that is the stress test
3: ain't what it was cracked up to be. Well, to look at it the other way, some of the nice work that David Newman just actually had published in JAMA, that oftentimes patients with positive stress tests don't have anything done about them. Right. Which is really just amazing. So let's drive let's, let's wrap this segment up here, Jan. Give us one Point that you'd like to send out to the listeners as far as evaluation of chest pain.
2: Although we would really like to believe that EKGs and markers are where the diagnosis at is at, it's the patient's history. You've got to ask the right questions. You've got to listen to the patient what they're telling you, um, and really combine that data with the objective data that you carry. It's excellent,
0: Rob. All of that is all of that is important, and. That Your spotty sense or your internal dialogue is maybe even more important that gut feeling that you have before we get into the case I want to ask ask the group When we're talking about negative
3: serial troponins. What is that Delta troponin? What does that mean? Well, so, so one of the folks at uh, my group came up to me and said I Was getting a Delta troponin and the first one is zero and the second one is zero, point zero 0.02 so it's basically gone up infinity <laughs> Where do I go from there? So I said, I don't know the answer. So I sent something to the guy that knows more about cardiology than anybody. He's on 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 two. Two. yeah, too. And yeah. he did not even understand the question. He sent, like, a couple question marks back to me. And so I rephrased it. <laughs> and I don't think the answer is there. I think that as far as troponins go, when you can have a negative or zero, I should, as your, as your first one, how do you say if it's increasing 50%? Do you guys, does anyone know the answer to that one? No, I mean,
1: there is no obvious answer. My, my question was the timing.
0: Yes. The timing.
1: Do you, do you do a 90
0: minute? A ninety minute delta? Do you say it's gotta be up to eight hours after after onset? Jen, I'm gonna I'm gonna direct this yeah, one.
2: Yeah, I we do I think it, our standard practice is a two hour delta, but not all of our practitioners subscribe to that. Those of us who like the delta trope do the delta trope, but not everybody believes in the delta trope. It's still kind of controversial on a faculty of fifty people. Right. But we do a two hour trope um, and with the assumption that our the troponin from the time of the chest pain, it should become positive within six hours, you know, somewhere in the six to nine hour range somewhere in there that you time your delta trope so that you're kind of hitting that point. Yeah,
3: Yeah, we do the same thing. So if you have a pain, say it's been going on for four hours, it's constant, or maybe they've had four hours of constant pain, and your second one is going to be at at the six-hour or so mark. Exactly. Feel fairly comfortable with that. And that's, I think, where a lot of people... Are doing that Now, I know that there's probably some controversy there, but, Rob, as far as your, your main point, the art of medicine is still there. You have a bad feeling about a patient, someone that you're concerned that you're going to send home. You're thinking about when you're driving home. Uh, you know, that's, that, that's the person. There's an art to medicine with things. So, Greg, give us one, one point with, uh, uh, out there with evaluation of chest pain.
1: Uh, you never say to anyone in the emergency department, you don't have coronary disease. What you can say is... At this moment in time these things look good but you cannot say uh, and I've heard patients say this a bunch of times they say oh I'm so glad it's not my heart no that's not what I said what I said was you do need to follow up you do need to have certain things done we can never guarantee in the emergency department it's not your heart we can say you're probably not with relatively good specificity that you're not infarcting at this moment and we need to make sure that that's stressed.
3: Okay, I'll do mine, and then we're gonna get to this case. Mine is just very simple and straightforward, is extending off of what Jan said, is that uh, getting that really great history, I think constant versus intermittent changes things, and I also think that you gotta always ask about the exertional part of things. So let's do a case now, and this is just gonna be one case, and we're gonna go all the way through it. We can talk about different kinds of branch points, and this is a 41-year-old woman and her name is Stacy. This story is completely 100% true, and nothing has been changed in her story, including the names, and in addition to that, the record, when we hear that, will be the exact documentation of the physician. Stacy is a worker. At one point, she was working three jobs, including a night shift at UPS. According to her mother, she never stopped working. At the age of 26, Stacy delivers a healthy baby girl, Selena. During the delivery, Stacy suffers what is called a diabetic stroke and is told to have a tubal ligation. At this time, she's married to Leo, but this marriage ends badly, and she's left to raise Selena on her own. Leo does not provide assistance. Though she doesn't have much money, Stacy is a wonderful mother. Supporting her daughter's interest in gymnastics and taking her to the beach, through the years, Selena becomes her best friend. In her early 30s, Stacy starts dating a man named Robert. At one point, she walks upstairs after doing laundry and hears Robert on the phone, saying, quote, I don't want the baby, you might as well do something with it, I don't want it. She confronts him, but he denies the conversation, so Stacy calls the woman back and says, I'll take the baby, I'll raise him as my own. She borrows money for adoption papers, pays for a DNA test to make sure it was Robert's, and she brings Matthew home from the hospital. On the evening of October 2nd, 2007, Stacy calls her mother and tells her she is having pains in her chest. Do you think it's indigestion? No, Stacy replies. I've been taking something for indigestion, and it's not working. So Stacy goes to the emergency department. At 1813, she is triaged with the chief complaint from the nurse, chest pain, pain from above the waist to the head, neck, and arms. Her initial set of vital signs shows that she's afebrile, her pulse is 97, respiratory 20, and her blood pressure is elevated, 186 over 96. Her stat is normal, and she said her pain scale is eight out of 10. She gives a past medical history of hypertension, stroke, and diabetes. She's a smoker. Medications include glucophage, Norvasc, Acupril, but she's been out of her meds for the last three months. The physician documents this at 855. Patient is a 46-year-old woman with chief complaint of chest pain for the last one day or so. Pain is a tightness across the chest and upper arms, which is worsened by deep breaths. Radiates the left arm. Past medical history of high blood pressure and diabetes. No nausea or vomiting, coughing blood, syncope, feelings of doom, shortness of breath, sweating, or palpitations. The nurse's notes were reviewed. She's a smoker and has a family history of cardiac disease after the age of 55. Physical exam is normal, except for showing prolonged splinting and decreased air movement and wheezing when the lungs are auscultated. She has a chest x-ray at 7.11 p.m., which is normal, finger stick blood sugar of 255, and has two EKGs the first showing a septal infarct, age undetermined. The second one is normal. She gets two albuterol aerosols, and the physician goes back and listens to her lungs again. They're improved, and they diagnose hypertension and bronchospasm and prescribe an albuterol aerosol and captopril. So let me just stop right here and summarize where we're at. We have a lady who has pain from her waist to her head. She is 46 years old. She... Has some past medical history Is not taking any medicine She is a classic example Of working poor Patient we see all the time She's a good person She's working hard And she has these complaints In the ED So Rob Why don't we just go around the table What are some thoughts On this patient Fairly in some ways nonspecific symptoms, at least as is documented. I mean, pain from her waist to her head, I guess her left knee doesn't hurt. But where do we go from here? There's a, there's a couple of things on this. One is
0: that the nurse's notes say pain from the waist to the head. And I'm looking at the doc's note and it's just chest pain radiating to the arm. And on the, then on the doc's note, there's also the, the wheezing and decreased air movement. So there's a couple of things here. One is that there's a discrepancy between the nurse's notes and the doc's note. And that, I mean that, and that has to be addressed. Because when I see that in the chief complaint, my first thought is, that's an aortic dissection. And when I see that blood pressure, I think, more a dissection. And then I see the history of hypertension, more of a dissection. I mean, of course, it could be cardiac ischemia. It could be a pulmonary embolus. 99 out of 100 times, this is bronchitis. This is some kind of bronchospastic disease, but that's not really going to kill the patient, at least looking at her vital signs here. So looking at at the doc's chart, there are some concerning things in here, such as the descriptors of the chest pain. Um, There's been a workup with an EKG and a a chest X-ray, but there's also this wheezing. The path to many bad outcomes is paved with the cobblestones of wheezing. That's like a Greg (laughs) (laughs) Henryism. So, and and most of the times, it is some kind of bronchospastic process. I've seen PEs present that way and other kinds of disease. So I think that uh, I'm concerned that there could be something serious going on and I'm concerned about some
3: gaps in the chart. Okay, excellent. So give me one thing on the history you'd wanna know in in addition to what was documented there. I wanna know more about this pain. I wanna
0: know more descriptors of this pain. How did it begin? Uh, w- what are the true exacerbating factors? Are there any neurologic complaints with this? I, you know, my, the, my differential
3: is maybe 10 things for this, and I've really got to rule them out, and I don't feel like they've been completely addressed. So, Jan, a resident comes up to you, senior resident, like the best resident in your shop, has never gotten anything wrong, says, I got this lady here, she's a smoker, she doesn't have insurance, she's like got pain everywhere, and she's wheezing and I'm gonna, she's got hypertension, it's untreated, she hasn't, she's non-compliant, hasn't taken her meds in three months, I'm sending her home, where do you go? (laughs)
2: Yeah, that that would worry me. This actually, this lady with the wheezing, she'd probably end up in our asthma booth, where a lot of bad cases come from because they're not actually asthma, but they presented wheezing. Um, and I agree that the wheezing and a that there's no history here of of asthma or you know any kind of lung problems. So that that objective finding of something that doesn't fit with the picture is very concerning to me. And there's a lot of things that it could be. So there's there there needs to be more workup done here. But there's also just the picture, the general picture of this hardworking blue collar lady, like you said, who doesn't come to the hospital. she out of her meds for three months so there's something wrong with her she wouldn't have come in um, taking care of the kids and the whole picture you painted unless there's really something wrong so my spidey sense my just sort of overall gestalt of the situation um, makes me worry about this lady just in general before I even get down to like specifics about diagnosis I'm Um, just worried
0: but then there's you know uh, most patients are going to come in maybe with some kind of bronchitic process with the presentation that Mike gave I I hurt everywhere and you're going to get that presentation to residents saying you know she's kind of got aches and pains and she's all wheezy
3: I'm gonna treat her for that
2: yeah no I think I that's true
3: so what do you do specifically? So, so um, I'm just wondering, I, without, without revealing any trade secrets here, you know, so, so, so you're working, you're on shift, and I assume that you're seeing patients also and residents are bringing you cases, or is it mostly residents bringing you stuff and you're teaching? How does it usually work when you're- it's mostly in your the life? latter. It's mostly okay. the latter.
2: What's interesting, especially if you talk about like the perfect senior resident, is I may not go see all of their patients myself, right. but this lady I'd probably go see, okay. because there's some discrepancies in the story and, and the background that I've heard that I'd say, you know, I'm gonna go see see this lady lay eyes on her myself and maybe ask her a few questions and get a feeling for what's going on.
3: And do you get to take a look at the chart also? Oh, yeah. Okay. And do you see the chart after they document or you sort of look at the nurse's notes and the vitals, that sort of stuff before they do
2: it? You know, actually in our county hospital, we have an electronic medical record now that's very progressive. So I can, I actually eyeball those things before even off, often this residents even seen the patient, I'm kind of looking through the people. So I probably have seen some of the data already myself.
3: Right. So you're thinking this is certainly walking in the door a higher-risk person for two reasons, probably one because of the complaint, but the other because there's such a high likelihood this patient will be written off. I think that's true. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying I'm above that in any way, shape, or form. I think that, that everyone, especially in a busy shift, maybe in the middle of the night, yeah, you're, you have ton, tons of people come in. It's, of course, in Columbus, Ohio, the middle cold and flu season, it's a little bit different for us you know, at that time. But uh, yeah, this, this would be certainly a higher risk for several reasons. Greg, your thoughts?
1: Well, my first thought is Robert is a bastard. Uh, you know, he's a
3: douche. But the, the worst- <laughs> and, and you're not talking about Rob, Robert Orman. Yeah. You're no, talking no. about- <laughs>
2: Robert, Robert, the guy who husband. knocked up the gal. And, <laughs> right. Yeah, that exactly. guy. Exactly.
3: I'm just and, making sure, Rob. I'm advocating yeah. for you, buddy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Using my feminine side here, I'm just, uh, but uh, I don't want any mistakes made thinking that this is an emotional crisis. Yeah, you can have an emotional crisis, But most people don't die from the emotional crisis. You have to kind of put that one off to the side. Second, I don't know of anybody who gets their first bout of asthma at 46. It's like saying, oh, I'm I'm 52 and I'm now having my first migraine. It never happened in the history of the world. Migraines start in your teens, okay? If you've got a sudden onset of of a terrible headache at 52, it's not migraine. This isn't asthma. So I'm going to take the emotional stuff, throw that out for right now. I'm going to take the, uh, I'm going to take the asthma and just say, there are other reasons you wheeze, uh, and, and we need to talk about that. But, I mean, could she have had a PE? I don't know at this point in time. I mean, dissection is still there. Uh, am I? Uh, the possibility is still there. I mean, there are a few things we've got to think about, but I know th- what I'm not going to be derailed on is emotion and asthma. Those are just wrong diagnoses at this point in time for me.
3: Yeah, this lady is making it some way too easy for us to come up with that diagnosis. The other thing, uh, and I'm just going to summarize a couple points about this, then we'll move on to what happens, is that her history with this chest tightness, and as as Rob said and and Jan brought up earlier, boy, I would really want to know, is it constant or is it intermittent? Is this pain worse with exertion? Has the patient had the pain in the past? Now, we know from the information I gave that the provider probably didn't know that she'd been using medication for heartburn, which wasn't working. Well, why was she using that medicine? Does she have a history of heartburn? I mean, there's so much data that is missing here that we don't really have the appropriate amount of information on which to base the decision. So I will tell you what happens with this lady. The patient gets sent home. Uh, his diagnosis, hypertension, and bronchospasm. And again, we don't see all of her complaints reflected in the diagnosis. And that's always a red flag for me. It's like, you know, she had a complaint. In fact, the chief complaint that, that she had chest pain, but that wasn't reflected at all in the diagnosis list. Her condition is stable. She has a disposition to home. She went with the driver. So I'm going to give you the rest of the story. We're going to hey, go back to the story Mike, here. Cut. I going to bring up one
0: thing. With, with that with, with what you just talked about with the discharge diagnoses when so we have we have an emr and we have templates or macros or whatever they're called and you can you know bring up your your standard framework whenever somebody comes in with chest pain i think probably a lot of ed docs do this i'll bring up my chest plane template and it's got all of the things that i worry about with chest pain and and it's, it's for, and you know, some of it's for the document, but really it's for me to go through all of those things. Was this pericarditis? Was this pneumothorax? Was this PE? Was this cardiac? So that I can go through the thought process and essentially just have a checklist to make sure that I haven't you know,
3: missed any of this stuff. Because a patient like this, it's so easy to miss the stuff. Yeah, this is our toughest patient, the multiple complaint patient. And the fact is, I have not found, I've thought about this a lot, I'm sure we all have, any great way to get past that thing beyond asking questions about each of those symptoms. And it's annoying, especially when you're busy, and we all get frustrated about this patient that everything hurts, but I think you got to at least go through things. And of course, the most important thing to go through is the chief complaint. And, And that's what wasn't really reflected. They found additional information, they focused on that, and they neglected to talk more about the chief complaint. So let me tell you what happens. When Stacy returns home from the hospital, she tells Selena, her daughter, that she's feeling better. When Selena goes to bed at 10 o'clock at night, everything seems fine, but she's woken around 2 o'clock in the morning with the sounds of her mother moving around the kitchen. According to Selena, quote, I went in there to see what was going on, and my mom went outside to smoke a cigarette, so I went out there with her and sat down on the front steps. She told me that she loved me and that everything was going to be okay, and she was sorry if she ever did anything bad to hurt me or my brother, Matthew. Selena thinks this is curious, but she tells her mom, quote, I told her I loved her too, and that was okay. She gave me a hug and a kiss, and I went back to bed. The next thing I remember is my mother's boyfriend, Steve, waking me up screaming and crying because my mom is on the floor, and she's not talking to him. I called 911, and they told me to give CPR. I tried, but nothing helped. Selena is sent to the hospital. She arrives in VFib. Multiple rounds of defibrillation and ACLS are unsuccessful, and she's pronounced dead. Autopsy done the next day, shows acute MI. Fast forward a few months. Plaintiff's opening statement. Good morning, everybody. One of the major reasons people come to the EDs in the U.S. is because of chest pain. Not all of it is fatal, and it's not always easy to diagnose. And the rule in the EDs is that you treat chest pain as a heart attack until you rule it out. That's the rule. The evidence is going to show that when Stacy left the hospital with her friend Danine, they were in shock. Danine regrets to this day that she did not bar the door and say, "Quote, no, we're not leaving," but they did. It's going to be up to you, the jurors, to figure out whether the discharge of Stacey was wrong, was negligent, the failure to even get a basic history was a violation of the standard. We strongly believe that had these things been done, Stacey would be here today and she would be raising her children. Thank you. So let's go to point one, and I'm going to give you a little bit of the back and forth between the plaintiff attorney and the ED physician, and then we'll have a brief discussion on it question from the plaintiff attorney. Question, now, in order to put the pieces of the puzzle together for what is causing chest pain, you need to get an accurate history, don't you? Answer, yes, sir. You don't just take the patient's words for it. There are criteria for doctors to probe into exactly the nature of the pain is. Isn't that correct? Those questions should have been asked, correct? Answer, yes, sir. They typically would be asked. And the reason they need to be asked is because we're dealing with something that can be missed, and you need as much information to puzzle together. Answer: Yes, sir. Rob, you want to be up on the witness stand with that history that was on this chart? Yeah, that's a challenge.
0: (laughs) This is tough. You know, I mean, it's it's as I'm look. We've got a just a, a little schematic of the initial part of the case, and you've got an EKG, septal infarct, age age undetermined, and that's part of the differential not not addressed. Jan?
2: Yeah, also, we haven't gotten to the physical exam, but there's a lot missing there too. But yeah, the the, the history of present illness is just not complete.
3: Yeah. Well, I'll be a bit contrarian with this, and um, I, I certainly don't want it to sound self-righteous at all. However, for me, the the history of chest pain, when I see someone with chest pain, I try to and, and there's a lot of different techniques. Amel has that old card mnemonic that he uses. I use something called, that I sort of came with, called the front door, back door approach. It's where I ask the history, and then I go back, think of the differential diagnosis, and I want to make sure I ask at least some questions to address all those. And I always think of the big three with chest pains. The same things we all think of is ACS or MI, is PE, and is dissection. And so I always want to, in addition to asking about ACS is exertional and all those types of things and associated symptoms, diaphoresis, dyspnea, et cetera. I would also think about the considerations for a PE dissection. Does it radiate to the back? Is there lightheadedness? Is there risk factors for PE? Is it pleuritic, that type of thing? So, um, yeah, without a doubt, we get this history all the time, and there's a huge denominator of patients coming in with these exact symptoms, but I, I just sort of feel like there's not any way to avoid missing this unlikely patient except to ask those important historical questions. And I don't think any of us, as, as we were saying, would want to be up on the, the stand trying to answer this. So let's move to the next one. It's something we talked about before is risk factors. And actually, I have this this uh, reference here that I, I gave. If anyone wants to see it, it's by Hahn. The Role of Cardiac Risk Factor Burden in Diagnosis in ACS and the ED, Annals of Emergency Medicine 2007. So um, let me read you some back and forth here, again, between the plaintiff, attorney and the emergency physician. Let's count the risk factors. One, diabetes, right? Answer, yes, sir. Two, smoking, correct? Answer, yes, sir. Three, hypertension? Yes, sir. Four, stroke? Yes. Five, age over 40? Yes. Six, family history? Yes. Question, it's a bunch, isn't it? Answer, yes, sir. We all know about the risk factor stuff, I'm guessing this played pretty well to a jury. Greg, you've yeah. seen juries react to different testimony? Well, having, having
1: put on the show for the jury a lot of times, I think that uh, if the plaintiff handles this well, this is going to be tough to run from. So doctor, maybe if we'd taken all of those into account, these children would have their mother for Christmas. I'd like to try this case in early December with the kids in their Christmas clothes for the for the closing argument ladies and gentlemen of the jury the doctor isn't a bad person but because of carelessness no one's putting packages under the tree for them tonight how would you like that as the closing art? You should
3: not have been a physician. You 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 A lot of people
1: a- say I wasn't a physician. <laughs> <laughs> but that's only my patients. I mean, and what do they know? Right, you know right.
3: Now when you're when you're
0: on the stand and you are asked a false yes or no question, you can reply, you know, if someone says, you know, and you can reply risk factors for what? Risk factors for heart disease, doctor? Well, risk factors for heart disease when? And to clarify the point, because you you are the expert in that and what I mean and that plaintiff's attorney is backing you into a to a corner and once you ask that first question, you are in that corner, and then it's like Mike Tyson with an eight punch combo. You cannot block it.
1: Well the the, the ways to deal with that really are um they say, Well it's yes or no, isn't so a doctor? Say no it isn't. And so I can't answer it. As framed, but I'd be happy to explain.
3: Next thought here is Pat Crossgary. Talked a lot about biases, and he talked about different things like diagnosis, momentum, things we've talked about on this show, anchoring bias. But one thing that he put in was triage queuing, And basically what triage queuing is, is a patient who is triaged to a lower acuity level, which somehow makes the provider less concerned than they otherwise would be. And what I'm going to do is, put something out there that hopefully will go a little ways towards answering a question which has repeatedly come up in the risk management monthly programs, whether it is a good idea to document that it's busy in the ED when you're seeing a patient. So if the ED is overwhelmed, and this has gone back and forth a bunch of times, I'm just going to give one other piece of information as to how that played out during this trial. So let me just set the stage for our third category here uh, of discussion, physician has been previously questioned, who said that the triage category, which is level three, which is the middles, not one or two, that they had said that that was appropriate question I want to get some clarity for the jury 's sake. Your position is she should not have been triaged triage category one, yes, sir, and you 're going to stand by the statement, yes, sir. I want you to look at exhibit exhibit thirty, please. It says departmental procedure, correct, yes, sir, And It was revised in June of two thousand and seven, four months prior to stacy 's presentation, correct yes, sir. It is the emergency department policy The purpose is, it is to describe the steps to be taken When caring for patients over 18 with chest pain Correct? Yes, sir It says the standard of care for all patients Who present to the ED with complaint of chest pain Should be evaluated as soon as possible By the triage nurse To initiate appropriate steps To minimize mortality and morbidity Correct? Yes, sir First, obtain a patient assessment Next, obtain a patient history She had at least six risk factors Read the department procedure to me Answer from the physician, assign a triage category of one or two. Question, didn't say three, did it? Answer, it does not. And so what the plaintiff attorney did is they displayed on the board all the patients that that physician had seen on that day with the time of arrival, the time the physician saw them, and the triage category, and they went through it, and they found that there was not one patient who had been categorized as a one or two. So the excuse that it was busy was not something that could be used. And then in addition to that, they went back, and this will be important as we go through this a little bit more, the fact that the ED departmental manual said this patient should have been triaged with a higher level of acuity. I was always taught to never discuss what else
0: is happening in the emergency department because, you know, it's relevant to the care that you're giving to your individual patient. Now, I don't know if that's right or wrong in the documentation,
1: but I don't. But I don't put it in there. Having been through this questioning a lot of times, they can always say, "Well, doctor, uh, so you were overwhelmed. Is that it?" Here's the billing slip. Would you show me where they got a 25% discount? That happens in Jan's place about every other night, right? Is that a fair statement, Jan? Yeah, that's
2: fine. What I'm thinking here is just, you know, when is it not like that where I work? And I I don't know why I would document that it was busy. It it just, who cares if it was busy? This lady died, you know, She she didn't get what she needed. If it was busy, so what? That's what you do. That's why this job is hard. There are times when there are specific delays to an imaging modality, when there are specific things that come up in the care of a patient. I will say, you know, we have this person still waiting for CT for a rule out dissection, something like that. There, were, there are eight other cases waiting for CT, um, that kind of thing. But if it, but we're talking about preventing you from taking a proper history in terms of being busy, that this, there's a disconnect there.
3: This is going to be a does the glove fit moment, and um, I'll be interested to, <laughs> to get everyone's thoughts on this one here. So, here's what the plaintiff attorney says to the physician because he feels like he's getting there. you know, He's got the knife, he's holding the knife, he's got it against the skin, all he needs to do is just stick it in and twist it a little bit and he'll be done. Right. So here's the question. Wouldn't it be nice to learn from a traumatic experience? This is from the plaintiff attorney. Wouldn't it be nice to learn from somebody's death and be willing to say, you know what, maybe let's go back and retrace our steps, hindsight granted, but do we want this to happen again? Answer, no sir, I, I think about this every day. I don't want it to happen again. This is very emotional for me do you know why I'm a doctor? When I was 16, question, your honor, can I have the witness instructed to, I'm answering your question. Your honor, can I have the witness instructed to, it's important for me to let this out. You asked me a question. Your honor, at which point the court says, just a minute, everybody, listen very carefully. Doctor, you will have a full opportunity to get your side of the story when counsel questions you. At the juncture we have now please answer the plaintiff's questions. I understand it's emotional for you and you want the jury to understand, but at this time, simply answer his question. A short time after that, the defense attorney takes the stand. The defense attorney says to the emergency physician, question, doctor, you've been on the stand for a few hours. While you were giving testimony a few moments ago, you started to say something about why you became a physician and the plaintiff counsel stopped you. Would you like to share this with the jury? Yes, sir. He'd asked me if I understand what they're going through. When I was 16, I took a chemistry test, and the secretary came and told me, you're to go right home. My mother had died of a heart attack at the age of 42. I understand what they're going through. This is a horrendous case for me. When they subpoenaed the documents, I mean, I literally sat down and sobbed that, that, that I all of those risk factors and everything is on there. And if the nurses mistriaged it, it's my job to do that. I don't know how I missed it. But I understand very well what they're going through. I go through it every day. I think about this case because it's almost an exact mirror image of what happened to my mother. She had some chest pains. Her doctor thought she was just an anxious housewife who drank too much sherry. And it turns out she dropped dead of a heart attack at 42. So I'm very much aware of what they're going through. This is a very emotional case for me. And again, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm reacting this way. But this is, I understand what they're going through. Defense attorney, thanks for sharing that, doctor. Greg Henry. Greg Henry.
1: I couldn't have written it better myself. Understand that, that every trial is a morality play, and they don't know anything about the standard of care, but juries know about the standard of caring, and they've got to sense you as a person who wanted to do the right thing. I mean, none of us want the patients to do badly. Your humanity is a better defense than any statistical probability study you can state.
3: So let me tell you what happens next. So here's the plaintiff attorney. You know what I'm getting at? At the hospital, worst case scenario, her chances are tremendously better than in a trailer park. You check that she was stable and she left the hospital, correct? Answer from the physician, I appear to be an error about her being stable. Plaintiff attorney says, whoa, What? wait, wait, what did you just say? Answer. I appear to be in error in checking she's stable. History has shown the fullness of time she apparently had unstable angina and so was not stable at discharge. I was in error. I made a mistake. The nursing staff didn't make a mistake. The hospital didn't make a mistake. I made a mistake. I had it at many risk factors. I thought I had answered her complaint with her blood pressure and her bronchospasm and the two EKGs that didn't have evolving change. I thought she was stable. I was wrong. I failed her. You've seen this on the, on, the, on the stand, Greg? I have seen
1: people break down on the stand because it was so much emotion in them at that moment in time. And, wow. and uh, you know, the, best, the best question is, Doctor, if it had been your mother, what would you have done? That is the best question. It's not what the standard of care is. It's what would you do for somebody you actually loved and cared about?
3: So let me wrap this up here. I'm going to tell you what happened, because there are more twists and turns in this case than in just about any case I've seen. So what happens next is the defense starts calling witnesses. Our cardiologist is undergoing direct examination by the defense counsel. He's being questioned about the testimony we just heard, and that the doctor admitted that they had screwed up. The cardiologist gets a little confused, and so listen to this exchange question this from the defense attorney did you learn that the doctor confessed to the jury that unstable angina caused her death answer when i did my report question no did you learn before you got on the witness stand answer um i know that he has he has already settled his case with them and he probably shouldn't have sent her home to which the plaintiff attorney jumps in wait he he just told the jury and the judge reps on the gavel sends everyone up to the bench The plaintiff attorney says the cardiologist just blurted out that the ED doctor had settled. We've all been told by the court to instruct the witnesses, not to mention that there was a settlement. So why is this important? What happens is, is that this trial was a trial against the hospital, because the physician had settled, and with the allegation that the hospital and the nursing staff did not serve this patient because she was triaged incorrectly and because they didn't take adequate care for her, and the plaintiff attorney says that he is moving for a mistrial. He says, in this case, Your Honor, we're faced with a high burden of willful and wanton behavior, because this case is in Texas. The settlement amount was $200,000, an insignificant and paltry amount for a 46-year-old woman who has died with two minor children. The judge denies the motion for a mistrial. The jury actually comes out with a $1.4 million Decision against the hospital, which is appealed. The appeal is held up by the Texas Board of Appeals because there is not willful and wanton behavior from the hospital, and the patient gets only the settlement amount, which I'm guessing a healthy chunk went to the plaintiff attorney.
1: Probably 33 and a third percent went to the uh, attorney. Uh, Understand this. This is the takeout double. Whenever you have willful and wanton sort of standards and you have joint and several liability, what's happened here is he has essentially told them to try the empty chair. I did it. Well, God, what what the message he actually sent was, find me guilty. So they find less against the hospital because what the jury doesn't know is he's already coughed up a certain part of his insurance policy, no matter what he said. If he said, I took out my jackknife and slit her throat, he couldn't do anything. This, was, this is a masterful stroke on somebody's part. This is, this is a true takeout double. You've transferred that liability to the empty chair, because it's essentially empty now, because he's kicked his money in and he's not there. Well, all I can say is it's a very interesting trial tactic. Not totally kosher, of course, but uh, it seems like they, they held it up.
3: Well, we, we, we would be remiss without having at least one thought of Rick Buchanan in here, and I'll, I'll just channel him here, yes. that this is the perfect example of artful lawyering.
1: Art, this is artful lawyering, and you would like to think that they didn't actually set it up this way. What evil lurks in the hearts of attorneys as much as they can fit in? I promise you that.
3: So let's do this. Let's go around the room just real quickly here. This is uh, boy, just tragic from start to finish. That boy, we're all all trying to do our best, and 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 uh, it seemed like the provider is a wonderful, caring provider. He was one of these people who actually went into medicine to help people. Even though it sounds cliche, I mean, he he, he put that part on the stand. The the plaintiff attorneys screwed up by by asking if he could understand the case and boy what kind of answer could you give me that'd be more more powerful than that so a couple of thoughts that you'd want to convey to the listener as far as making patients safer
2: in this case the physician made a mistake and he admitted it and we're going to make mistakes and in the end his the, the you know the emergency physicians part of it they settled and that was probably the right thing um, and obviously, I feel sorry for the physician listening to this testimony and how it personally related to him, um, that it was he made a mistake in a case that was very, very relevant to his life. Um, and I, I'm curious, I would want to know from the physician, you know, how he dealt with that kind of stress. Um, this is the kind of thing that sometimes people don't continue their careers after this. They just can't deal with the amount of responsibility and the, and the guilt of the mistake that, that you've made. And that's, that's a tough part about this story.
3: It's a tough part about this profession. yeah. Because we all, I mean, look at it: 150,000 patients or 175 that we'll all on average see during our careers. It's going to be some cases that you can look back and say, maybe I could have done a little bit better. And that's, I think, really the point of this program. Rob, thoughts? I can remember
0: early on in my training doing a rotation through the surgical ICU. And I had a senior resident. uh, He he was about 5'2", but just, you know, in charge of the whole hospital. And he approached every case... No matter how simple, and this is, this is a surgeon, mind you. So, yeah, but he's going to get props here. Every case, no matter how simple, as if it were the worst thing ever, and he would say, and he would say every time when we'd say, "Well, what, what, This is obviously this thing." He listen. You got to go through the process, and he kind of had kind of had a high pitched voice like this. He said, "Listen, you don't do it this way. Just rat the check. Just rat the check." And I think that. We, get in, we can get into this trap, we see so many patients, and we are so astute at, at assessing sick, not sick, sick, not sick, and that's our, one of our skills, that if we don't go through the process in our head of this complaint, what are the worst things that it can be, every time that checklist of what are the things that I need to rule out,
3: at least by just thinking about it, then you're putting yourself and your patient at risk. This job is a lot of ways more about perspiration than than inspiration. Boy, you have to have the data on which to be able to make your decision. Anybody that has the data that if we would have had here, we're going to make the correct decision most of the time. But that's why our job is two parts. One is to get that data and then to use that data on which to make a decision. Greg, some final thoughts and then a wine of the month? Yes. You see, it's the signal to noise. What's going on in the background and how do you separate out
1: those true kernels of disease? Lastly, uh, the comments made about how did they take uh, the stress of this trial. I've counseled several hundred people through litigation stress and then post-litigation stress. And I've had, uh, uh, over the years, I've had three doctors commit suicide, uh, all of whom were under suit at that time. Uh, This is a serious problem. It's worse when you're very, very young in the process because you can't fall back on your 20 years of having helped people out. Uh, I actually give a program at the national meeting with uh, Jillian Schmitz, who's been on this program. She was sued a year after being in residency, and it, it marked and changed her life. I would be concerned how this physician is gonna do the next time somebody comes in with a little wheezing and a little chest pain. No matter what we say about statistics, we always practice our last worst case. Well, I think do you we're, no, we're going to have a, a guest commenter on wine of the month. Go ahead.
0: Deloach oh. De Vineyards, Pinot Noir, 2012. Oh, simply fantastic.
1: Uh, doctor, you're not going to get away that easily. How much per bottle?
0: You're going to have to ask my wife that.
1: Oh, okay, and are you quoting Parker? Are you quoting the Wine Institute? Are you quoting the Wine Advocate? Who, who, who are you bringing to this table, doctor, to, to say that this is a
0: great wine? The only gauge of quality I have, sir, is my own taste. Right. And I give this an 89.
1: An 89. There you have it, folks, Wine of the Month. We'll be uh, seeing you next month, and uh, next time I will be with the, the old partner, Rick Bucata. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.